Good morning. Um, Pray with me if you would. Father in heaven, we thank you for the freedom we have to gather and to hear your word. Excuse me. Um, Pray that we would not leave this place unchanged by hearing your word and by the preaching of your word. Amen. The scripture this morning is Colossians 3, uh, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jamie. We're spending a couple of months late in spring and early into summer carefully and intentionally asking, what does it mean to belong to the church? We're thinking about belonging. And I'm going to emphasize every single week uh, because in a sense, this isn't just a series about belonging to the church, but it's a series about the church itself, that the church is fundamentally a people. The church, the definition of the church fundamentally is people. It's relationships. A lot of times we say, oh, I'm going to run over to the church, or I'm going to church on Sunday morning. We think the church is a building, or we talk about it like an organization or an event. Uh, Those things serve the church, but they are not the church. The church is more than a building, more than an organization. It's more than an event. The church is people. It's relationships. Maybe the best metaphor is a family, which means that we, the church, we are the church. This building is not the church, but we are the church. And the church is a group of people who are committed to love one another through and in the love of Christ. We're committed to one another in love. Uh, John put it this way to, last week and the week before. We looked at the church through the lens of First John 4. And John says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So because the church is people, because it's fundamentally relationships, maybe the best way we can learn what it means to belong to the church is to look at the different places in Scripture where we get instruction about how to interact with one another. How do we interact with one another? Now, I've looked up every place in the New Testament that we see that phrase, one another, And every time that it says to do something, that it's a command or an imperative, I've kind of isolated those. We've got those lists. I think they're in the front of the back. So on your way out, you can can just grab one and see, how does the Bible instruct us to treat one another? We see all sorts of things. We love one another. That's the most frequent, a third of the time that it says something one another. It's love one another. We see others that we're going to talk about. Bear with one another. Be patient with one another. Forgive one another. Spur one another on. Just a few examples. But there are all of these commands of how are we to treat one another. 
So we're thinking about the one another's in Scripture this season, and we're structuring that through our church covenant. Uh, our church covenant is a document that, honestly, we've, we kind of forget about. It's easy to forget. Uh, it's been part of the life of our church family since 1840. That's a long time. It is a robust, um, rich document. It's more than just a document. It's a set of commitments that we make to each other. And so it gives us a good picture of what does it mean to belong to the church and what does it mean to belong to one another. And what we're going to see throughout this whole series is that belonging to a church, and a lot of times we use the language of membership, being a member of a church, they're more or less interchangeable. Belonging to a church really raises the bar. It doesn't lower it. In other words, when you belong to a church, now the church and God ask more of you, not less of you. Or as another pastor friend of mine puts it, he likes to say, uh, belonging to a church is different, being a member of a church is different from being a member at Costco. They're very different. Now it's important because we use the language of membership differently in different contexts to ask, what do we mean by that? Fundamentally, belonging to a church or being a member of a church is more about what you give than what you get. And maybe that's the key difference. When you think about Costco, there's not a Costco around here, but like BJ's, that, you know, you get a membership to Costco. What's it about? Well, you pay your dues, your monthly or I guess it's yearly dues, and then you get something in return. Namely, you get like a privilege. You get the privilege of buying a, a pallet of toilet paper at a time, and it's like five cents cheaper per roll or something like that. You, you pay something, and then you get something in return. It's a transaction. It's the same membership in a club, like a social club or even a country club. Some of you like to golf. Some of you are members of a country club. What happens? You pay dues, and then you get something. You get the privilege of going, going to play golf. I think some of you are going to play golf this afternoon, and I'm a little bit jealous. Um, you get the privilege of playing golf at this country club or tennis or going to the pool, whatever they have. But it's fundamentally about what you get. Now, those aren't bad things. Being a mem- I'm not saying you shouldn't be a member at Costco, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be a member of a country club. Like, those, are, those are fundamentally good things, but I point that out to say the way we use the word member in those contexts is very different from the way the Bible uses the word member and when we talk about membership in a church family. Truth be told, there are very few benefits, so to speak, at least tangible benefits in that sense of being a member of a church. You can come here, you can worship with us, you can serve in the church in a number of ways, not every way, but in a number of ways. Like you can almost, not completely, but, but pretty close to completely be a part of the life of our church family without committing in membership. And, and you can do that for your whole life. So why do we emphasize this? Because fundamentally, belonging to a church, belonging to one another, right? Because remember, the church is not an organization, it's relationships. It's about what we give, not what we get. It is not a transaction. Membership means we ask more, not less. Belonging to one another means we ask more of one another, not less of one another. And we're going to see that most clearly, I think, this morning and next week. We're going to take the, so our covenant is structured into seven chunks. We spent the first two weeks looking at the first chunk. This week and next week, we're going to look at the second chunk. 
and we're going to learn about maybe the most demanding commitment we make as we commit to one another. Here's how the covenant puts it. It says, we will exercise a Christian care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish our brethren, that means one another, as the case shall require. This is the hardest point, to warn, rebuke, and admonish one another. Uh, This is just no fun. But it's there, so we're going to deal with it. And it's there, and it's in Scripture. It's actually very clear in Scripture, and so we have to deal with it. I'll tell you, this, these are hard to preach. These are hard to practice. They're hard for all of us. We don't, nobody likes confrontation, I don't think. Uh, if you like confrontation, then, then you need to um, get some other kinds of help, probably. Uh, nobody likes confrontation. It's also hard because you can't learn to do it just by listening to, okay, Pastor Chris preached about this for two weeks. Now I know how to do this. No, I can't teach you to do that any more than I can teach you to ride a bicycle through a sermon. I mean, I can tell you, you need to pedal, and the faster you go, the more you'll straight, you know, and steer your handlebars, but how do you learn to ride a bicycle? You practice. You just, you just got to do it, and you got to fall, and you got to get up, and you got to try again and get better and better and better. It's kind of like that. So over the next two weeks, we're going to explore what does it mean? I'm going to just isolate the word admonish because it's kind of a catch-all word. What does it mean that we commit to admonish one another? And this isn't something we've talked a whole lot about. That's one of the reasons I'm taking two weeks, so that we can really be careful and explore this. This week, we're going to look more at the motives behind correction and admonition. Next week, we're going to get more into the nitty-gritty, really practical details of it. What does it look like? But the reason we have to start here is because if we skip it and rush to the practicals, we'll probably do more harm than good. That would be kind of like a, imagine a surgeon who is just really eager to cut open their first patient without having taken an anatomy class. We have to know what we're getting into and understand the why before we take that scalpel out. So what does it mean to admonish someone? What does it mean to admonish someone? Well, first and foremost, remember, I've already said this, that the church is primarily people. We are committed to one another in love. So if you see somebody on a destructive path, whether that's destructive to themselves or destructive to other people, what does love demand? Love demands that we intervene. That kind of a loving intervention is really what we're talking about. Maybe maybe to admonish, a good definition would be a loving intervention intervention. We're going to use mostly the word, like I said, admonish this morning, partly because it's in our covenant. Also, it's in our reading today, uh, Colossians 3.16, halfway or a little more than halfway through. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. To admonish someone is a is a loving intervention. You might, you might talk about it like a gentle warning. It's not, we're going to talk more about this later, to berate somebody or to scold somebody or to shame somebody. But it is very often to be firm. If you see a car speeding towards where a bridge used to be, but the bridge is out 
We live in, those of you who live in Portsmouth, like remember five years ago when they replaced every single bridge in town at once? There were a lot of bridges out. If you see a car speeding towards a bridge that's out, wouldn't you try to warn that driver? To admonish someone is to tell the truth in love. In love. Proverbs 27.6 puts it this way, and this is so helpful. It says, Profuse are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let me say that again. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds, the wounds of a friend. Isn't that an interesting phrase, the wounds of a friend? The kisses of an enemy, that's an interesting phrase as well. Do you want to know how someone really loves you? That they're willing to say something in love that they know will hurt you in the short run because they know it will make you healthier and stronger in the long run. So imagine you're the one speeding towards where that bridge used to be. And you see somebody on the side of the road just yelling and screaming. You might think, what a, you know what. But if you're speeding towards where the bridge used to be and somebody doesn't try to stop you, would you call that person a friend? What if they said, well, well I, didn't, I didn't want to upset them. Is that loving? That's not a friend, that's an enemy. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Or imagine maybe you're a parent. You don't even have to be, be a parent or have been a parent uh, to get this. Imagine you're a parent and you're playing with your toddler in the yard and your toddler starts to run towards a busy street. You're going to warn them, right? Sweetie, stay in the yard. And they keep running. And then you get a little more stern. You say, stop. And they keep running. And all of a sudden, they're on the sidewalk just about in the street. And you say, stop. You awake? I've been looking forward to that part all week. (laughs) Now your toddler starts to cry. You yelled at me. You yanked me back violently. You hurt me. I thought you loved me. You yelled at your kid and you yanked your kid back violently because you love them, right? You were willing to hurt them in the short run so that they would be healthier and stronger in the long run. If you really loved me, Daddy, you wouldn't restrict my freedom. No. I restrict your freedom because I love you. In fact, there is greater love within boundaries than there is with no boundaries. So when we warn one another about sin in our lives, and I know it's a little more abstract, and we will, I promise, towards the end of this sermon and really into next week get more specific, but when we warn somebody about sin in their lives, about destructive tendencies, about dangerous patterns, about heading down a road that's only going to lead towards death, I mean, we we don't want to do this. We're not eager for it. We're not excited about it. It's uncomfortable. 
It's uncomfortable to give admonition, and it's uncomfortable to receive admonition. Nobody likes this. And the other person may interpret this not as loving, but as an attack. What do we do? Well, love usually demands that we find a way to lovingly and gently intervene. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. I read this uh, week, Arthur E. Wright is a deacon in the Methodist Church. She wrote an article about this, and she writes this. The beloved community, she's talking about the church there, resolves conflicts peacefully without violence, recognizing, and here's the part that I really want you to focus on, recognizing that peacefully does not always mean comfortably for everyone. Peacefully does not always mean comfortably for everyone. You may be hoping that I'm going to give you some silver bullet. Pastor Chris is going to teach me how to admonish someone, how to lovingly intervene in somebody's life in a way that's not uncomfortable. I can't. It's always uncomfortable. It's always awkward. It's very often painful. But love means sometimes we do have to open up certain wounds. Not in a cavalier way, but sometimes we have to do or say things that we know will hurt in the short run so that our beloved, the people whom we love, our brothers and sisters, don't hurt themselves or others in a more destructive way in the long run. In other words, just because something is uncomfortable does not mean it's unchristian. Very practically speaking, is it unchristian, is it unloving to violently yank that toddler back from the busy road? No, I think we would say, I think you would agree with me, that's the most loving thing you can do. It's uncomfortable, yes. And a lot of times there's just no way around it. We stumble over our words, we talk ourselves into a corner, We leave thinking, man, I should have said five different things differently, and I could have said that so much better. There's there's no perfect, elegant, smooth way to do this. And yet, when done rightly, it's an act of love. Now, let's just explore for a little bit what happens if we admonish someone without love. What happens if, if you just let somebody have it? In John 1, it describes Jesus, and it says Jesus came full of grace and truth. That's such a helpful little rubric, full of grace and truth. If we're trying to be Christ-like in every part of our lives, then we want to be full of grace and truth. What happens if you're one and not the other? What happens if you're full of truth and no grace? We've probably all been in those kinds of situations, haven't we? Here's what Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, the tongues of angels, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But have not love, I'm nothing but a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. Just, what's a clashing cymbal? Literally just a cymbal that somebody, like, it's obnoxious. It's just obnoxious. If I speak In the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. What am I? At best, 
obnoxious. <laughs> when the time comes to admonish one another, if we have not love, we are way off course. We end up doing more harm than good. And this is why it's so important to note that this is not about berating somebody. This is not about scolding somebody. This is not about shaming somebody. We'll talk more about this next week, but this is not about any sort of um, what we might call today a character assassination. In other words, the way forward is not to tell somebody that they are wrong, but to focus more on an action than the person themselves. Which means that we, for starters, we always start gently. Imagine you're back in the yard with your toddler. Now, if your toddler is 30 yards from the road, and starts running towards the road, you don't start by yanking them back violently when they're 30 yards from the road, do you? No, you start with a gentle, sweetie, stay here. And the closer they get to the road, the more firm you become. Which means that there are times when, when something sharp and very direct is appropriate. How do you know? Look at verse 16. Do it with all wisdom. In other words, there's no formula. It just, it just requires wisdom and judgment. Again, we'll cover this more next week. Uh, sometimes we just, we, we take a wholly educated guess. There are times when a sharp word is in order, but we don't start there. You don't violently yank your toddler back when they're 20 feet from the road. You start gently. Proverbs 15:1 puts it this way. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 6.1, he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Gently. Paul makes a point of adding that word gently. And back here in Colossians 3, Yes, he teaches us to admonish one another, but look at the context. If you have your program open or if you have your Bible open, just look at this section, Colossians three twelve through 17. He doesn't get to admonishing one another until almost dead last. Notice what he teaches before he says to admonish one another. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with each other. That's another way of saying be patient. Forgive each other as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful if you want to be systematic about it, you can count, and you'll count 10 different positive instructions Paul gives us before he gets to the command to admonish one another in all wisdom. In other words, this is not first on the list. This is, in a sense, 10th on the list. That means admonition is to be done gently, carefully, in all love and tenderness. It's the difference between saying, Chris, you really blew it. And saying, Chris, you should be ashamed of yourself. 
See, both of those are are really just blunt and direct. And the second, as we'll see more next week, a phrase like, you should be ashamed of yourself, doesn't focus on an action but on a person. That's not correcting an action. That's tearing a person down. Instead, it might look more like this. Chris, can we talk? This, this isn't easy. I don't even know how to, how to talk about this. But I've just noticed over the past few months, when X happens, you seem to respond in this way or that way. I'm just, I'm just concerned about this. Can we talk more about this? You see the difference? The truth spoken in love is powerful. If you approach me and you say, Chris, you blew it. Chris, you should be ashamed of yourself. What happens? All of my defenses go up. I build walls between you and me, and now we've just lost that conversation. You've actually lost me. But if the conversation starts, Chris, can we talk? I've I've noticed this. I've seen this. I'm concerned. Now my defenses are lower, and we actually have a chance at an interaction and that reconciliation that we're aiming for. The truth spoken without love makes it less likely that somebody will actually listen to us. You see, we need truth and grace in equal measures, not truth without grace and not grace without truth. Because grace without truth isn't loving, as we saw. That's letting somebody hurtle towards that cliff and not stopping them. It's both and. And it's also important to remember we always start with grace. We start with grace always. Our church covenant makes this clear. You notice the very first words in the church covenant, as we trust we have been brought by divine grace to accept our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with grace. And Paul starts with it in Colossians 3. Look at how the passage starts. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved. Paul doesn't start by telling us what to do. He starts by telling us who we are. Isn't that good news? Paul doesn't start by saying, you need to do this, 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 and this. No, he starts by saying, this is who you are. And who does he say you are? We looked at this last week. It's worth reemphasizing this morning. Holy and beloved. Do you believe that you are beloved by God? That you are deeply loved by him? The love and the tenderness and the mercy of God must come before our own actions, how we treat one another. If not, then we're going to start thinking that God's love for us depends on our own obedience or on how well we behave. And if that's the case, you're going to live in constant fear and not freedom. You're going to constantly, maybe you'll be doing the right thing, but you'll only do the right thing because you're afraid of losing God's affection. You become a slave to your own fear. But if you start with your identity and remember you are holy and beloved, therefore walk in these ways. That's freedom. 
That's the freedom of walking and following Jesus because you know you already have his affection and nothing can take that from you. Would you rather live in the fear of losing God's affection or would you rather walk in the freedom of knowing you can never lose it? You see, our commitment to admonish one another in love is grounded not only in our love for one another, but fundamentally in God's love for us. Paul hints at this in verse 13. Look at verse 13. What does he say? He says, forgive one another as the Lord forgave you. It changes the game entirely when we're talking about hard interactions and even forgiving one another, when we start with the fact that, you know what? I'm a sinner who desperately needs the grace of Christ, just like this person who hurt me. I need grace just as much as they do. There's nothing better about me, you see. Now we're approaching one another on equal footing instead of in a hierarchical way. You see, our goal in admonition is to lovingly confront sin, not because it feels good to just put someone in their place or to let them have it, but because we want to see someone leave behind what is only leading to death and to embrace joy and life and peace, which means that we have to deal with the death-dealing side of things. That's what we call sin, And it means that we're always moving towards life and restoration and reconciliation. It's both and. It's truth and grace. Fundamentally, why? Because this is what Jesus did for us. We've talked about how admonishing one another is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to receive an admonition because it forces us to confront our own sin and yet the more, we, the, more we, the more we meditate on the cross, the more we wonder at just how deep Jesus loved us that he would give his life for us, the more that forces us to confront our own sin and to be healed and cleansed from it. And admonition is uncomfortable to give because we're always absorbing some hurt. We're taking on a hurt in ourselves Would anyone argue that the cross wasn't painful or uncomfortable? But in the cross, we have the most perfect display of truth and grace. Truth, we are broken and needy and sinful creatures, all of us. We we all struggle. You're no exception. I'm no exception. We all desperately need the grace of Christ. That's the truth side. The grace side, he has poured it out on you and on me more fully than we could possibly begin to imagine. And all of life at its best is coming to a deeper, richer realization and wonder at the mercy that he is pouring out on you and on me. It's at the cross that death itself was put to death, and it's in the resurrection, the empty tomb. Remember, Easter was just a month ago. How quickly we move on. Remember, friends, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. 
Jesus is alive, he's not dead, and that means those of us who are in Christ are alive and not dead. This is not just about dealing with what's difficult, but it's about walking into new life. It's not just about helping each other become better people. It's not just about pruning or pulling a couple of weeds in one another's lives. This is about being so committed to one another in love, in rich, deep, robust love that we will bear incredible pain and discomfort so that together we can walk into the marvelous light, the marvelous life which God in Christ offers to us.